I want to thank you for being here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the teaching pastors here and uh, lead pastor of, of Outward Church. Um, just a, a couple of things this morning. Uh, we just began supporting uh, Aaron Nabriha, church planter in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, City Life Charleston is, uh, is the name of the, uh, the church there, and um, they are on a retreat uh, this weekend with their core team, with the people that are helping them uh, plant and start this church that's going to be in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Aaron is a good friend of mine. I'm super excited about him uh, finally beginning this. He's been talking about doing something along these lines uh, for many years now, so I'm excited about that. And um, just if you, if you think of them, could you just be praying for them as they're uh, getting started and uh, on their retreat uh, this weekend? In addition to this, we have a soccer camp that begins on August 29th. And this soccer camp is, is both for uh, our kids, uh, but it is mostly for the kids in the neighborhood around Richmond Elementary. You can sign up to serve uh, uh, during that week uh, to be a part of that. You can sign up to have your kids be a part of that as well. We need lots of help with that. It's, it is one of the biggest opportunities that we have to serve in our community. And um, we count this as a, as a serious thing uh, to be a part of this. I'm really asking you uh, that uh, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ and that you're, if you're a part of Outward Church, if you uh, love the vision of Outward Church, which is in essence to be outward, to live outside of ourselves, to be people who are uh, uh, loving Jesus and living outward as a result, that you would be a part of this as well. This is the manifestation of the vision that God has given us uh, to be salt and light, to serve our community, and to show them uh, who Jesus is in our community by, by serving them. And so I uh, would love to have you be a part of that. Uh, and also, just before I forget, uh, we have a storage unit that's just a couple blocks away from here over off of Broadway, and um, I, I brought my big ugly truck. If you drove through the parking lot, you saw that, and that is the infamous dump truck that I uh, purchased some time ago on Craigslist for a great deal, but I've had quite a few repairs on, so um, that's besides the point. But in any case, uh, we have a storage unit, and, and we have to get out of that storage unit. We have a new storage unit that we had placed behind uh, the church. I just need a few guys, and, and I think 20 to 30 minutes tops, just right after service, we'll jet over there, throw a few things in, and then throw it in, uh, in the unit over here. And that would be a huge help to us. It would help us uh, get some things moved over. So if you can help with that, I'll mention it again at the end of the service. And if you want to, uh, just come up and talk to me afterwards, and I'd love to get you going on that. I'm actually going to be helping with that. Um, and so uh, I'll be working alongside of you. Uh, so I would love to see that happen. Uh, listen, we're in the book of Habakkuk again. You can turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll be picking it up in, in, in really verse 6, kind of uh, right in that area. We've been talking uh, through this book because it's, it's, it's not a super well-known book. Not a lot of people have read it or really even understand it, perhaps. But it really says some really incredible things. And, and the reason why it's incredible is, is essentially Habakkuk goes to God and he says, Why do you idly sit by when your people are doing uh, horrific things? Why are you just kind of looking on this as though you're just a spectator? And the way that we would look at this is that we would say, all right, is God real? Uh, is he really real? Um, and if he is real, does he care about what's happening in our world? Does he care about what's taking place? 
uh, in, in our world. And so Habakkuk has some serious questions that he's asking God, and he's saying, God, why do you make me look at violence, and why do you idly stand by when these things take place? And then God responds to him and says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm about to do a work that you would not believe if told. And the work that he's about to do is he's going to use an incredibly evil nation, even more evil than his own people. The people of Israel, who, uh, Judah, uh, he's going to use people who are even more evil than they are to judge his own people. And they're going to come in and they're going to devastate uh, God's own people. And this obviously brings Habakkuk to his knees, and, and he's just like, God, how could you allow this to take place? And so I've, I've almost been pleading with you. I've almost, I, and, and I really do want to plead with you. Because many of you have a faith that's an inch deep and maybe a mile wide. And I'm not here to criticize you, I'm just saying this, and, and that is that God has much bigger things in store for you. And if you don't get this, then you're going to miss it. You're going to miss what God has in store for you because God's uh, means of changing our lives is often through the evil around us, through the, the disasters that take place, through the things that are difficult, through the things that are hard. And if you don't get that, and if you think that somehow God should be blessing you because you've done something for God, then you have missed the point and you don't understand it. So being a Christian is really somebody who says this. He says, I understand that God is going to use evil uh, even in my life to bring about his good. And so what Habakkuk uh, uh, kind of left off with here, the book of Habakkuk left off here uh, with is in verse 2, uh, chapter 4. It says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so God has this word for Habakkuk, and he says, uh, I see Babylon. I see this evil nation that is going to judge Judah. I see them, and they are prideful, and they are arrogant, and they, are, and they have in incredible problems. They are very evil but the person who's going to live through this, the righteous, shall live by his faith. And what we explained last week is this, is that the, the righteousness that we're talking about, the righteousness comes from faith. It's not because they possess it in and of themselves, but it, it is completely on God. It's, I'm trusting God I'm trusting God in what he's doing in my world. I'm trusting him for what he is going to do. Now, why do we need to trust God? And so he, let, let me pick it up in verse 5 here. It says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He, never, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. What that is saying is this. Wine is a word that's describing who Babylon is. Babylon and the Chaldeans, it, it, they are also called, it, are people who are uh, typified by the use of alcohol and drunkenness. And he says, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. And he's describing these people. And God is telling Habakkuk. He say, he's describing who they are. And then he's going to go into more detail right now, and he's going to say, this is who they are. And so he's going to, he's going to bring about, he's going to talk about five woes, 
five woes. Now, what is a woe? There's a couple of things that could be like, whoa, they're evil. Like, whoa. I don't know if you remember the show Blossom uh, from the early 90s, and Joey, and it, Joey would constantly say, whoa, like that, like, whoa, they're evil. I, I'm not sure it's like that either. I, I, I'm not sure it's like, oh, my goodness. Uh, no, woe, W-O-E, is a word for judgment. Judgment is coming to these people, and God is saying to Habakkuk, I'm seeing what's going on here, and he's going to say specifically what he sees. And so I want to walk through that with you here. He begins with this in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say? I want to stop right there because I think this is very confusing. I think that this passage is very confusing. If you're somebody who's read this at all, if you've read ahead, you might have read this and just went, I don't know what the heck that means. And even as a preacher, as a pastor, I, I mean, these things are difficult to understand sometimes. What is he saying here? What he's saying is this. He's saying, I have five songs that are going to mock these people. I have five songs. And these five songs all are about woe. They're about judgment. And so he says, uh, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? If you were to read this in the Hebrew, what you would be reading in some ways is that there, there's some alliteration, there's some rhyming that takes place. It would almost be like this, this catchy little scat that happens. And so maybe they all sat around and sang these woe songs. They hit top 40 and they were an amazing song. Like, oh, that's the word about Babylon and how they're all going to die. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. But he says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself up with pledges will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble then you will be spoiled for them now i want to stop right there what's this saying it's saying this it's saying that god sees the greed of the babylonian people and he sees them and he says Woe to him who heaps up. He's taking what isn't his. How long? How long is he going to be able to do this? How long can I see this happen? He says this. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. What's God saying here? God is saying this. God is saying, you've been putting people in your debt You've been causing people to be debtors, or you've been building up a debt. You've, been you've, you've gone into these cities, you've taken these people, and you've caused them to be pledges, and you've built up this debt, and will not your debtors, will not these same people who you have taken as pledges, and you've taken their stuff, will not they suddenly arise, and they will awake, and they will make you tremble. They will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. You will be spoiled for them. And what's that saying? It's saying there are natural consequences for the things that Babylon is doing. There's natural consequences. But it's also a prophecy. It's saying this. It's saying that what's going to happen is that there's going to come a day when their rule will end. If you read Daniel chapter 5 in its entirety, you will see where their rule, where Babylon comes to an end. And it's very swift. And it comes as a result of mocking God. 
They take all of the gold instruments, the things from the temple of God that they had carried off into exile. And they're having this party. And the king says, hey, bring all those cups and all those instruments that are meant for the worship of, of God and let's drink and let's party. And you can imagine what's taking place in this, this drunken orgy of a party that's happening. And they're drinking and all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, the king sees this hand writing on the wall. That's where we get the expression. Uh, you know, we can see the writing on the wall. The end is near. The end is near, basically, is what he says. And he says, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. These people are going to come after you. They're going to come after you, and they're going to plunder you. And why is that? For two reasons. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, what does God care about here with these people? What does God care about what's taking place? God cares that he's gone in, that, he, that, that these people that Babylon have taken things. They've put people in their debt. They have, they have charged them heaps of money. They've taken things from them. And he says, not only are you going to receive natural consequences, but you're going to receive consequences from me. And in addition to that, he's going to say, for the blood of man and violence to the earth. Now, think of those two things. What's he talking about? Well, first of all, they would go in and they would kill uh, many of the men, especially the useless people that they didn't think could do anything. They weren't craftsmen. They didn't have any special uh, gifts or anything like that. And so they would, they would kill them off. They would take advantage of the women. They'd do whatever they wanted to the children, put them into slavery. They would take all of their stuff, and then they would go through, and they would cut down uh, the lumber. They'd cut down the logs, and they'd haul that off. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. And God cares about this. God cares about the blood that was shed. God sees that these people were murdering. In addition to that, God sees the violence to the earth. God sees the violence to the earth. Now, people who are Christians, oftentimes, who have a conservative viewpoint politically, oftentimes, we don't take seriously violence to the earth. Especially if you're Christian and you have an uh, a, uh, end times uh, viewpoint, which often says it's all going to be burned up anyway. And so why should we really care about that? But God cares. God sees what took place by these people, how they'd chop down all of these huge logs and they would carry them off. And God sees how they'd go through and they'd salt the, the ground so that nothing could grow there again and how they, they purposefully were violent, not just towards the men, not just towards the environment, but even towards the animals. They would just kill all of them. God cares about that. Now, what, why is that important? Why should you care? Because God cares infinitely more than you do about the people that are dying. God cares infinitely more than you do about the way that our earth is treated with impunity saying, God's not going to care. Who cares? I'll do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want to do it. But God sees it, and God judges it. Look at the next passage here. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm, 
You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So God sees the greed of these people and how they just wanted whatever they wanted and they took whatever they wanted and, and they, they, they gathered all of these things. But then secondly, he sees their theft. He sees how they have gone in, taken these things, and he's specifically coming after them and he's pronouncing judgment. He's saying, woe to you who do these things to set your nest on high. They go through, they kill everything, they take, all of, they take all of this material, and he says, you have devised shame for your house. But look at the contrast there between that and the last part of verse 9, to be safe from the reach of harm. What have they done? They've taken all of these things because they're trying to build up their castle, they're trying to build up their stuff. They're trying to get higher on the hill. They're getting this overlooking uh, house that's going to be away from all of those lowly people. They want to get up there. They want to be away from all of that stuff. And he says, you have devised shame for yourself because the way that you got that is by cutting off many peoples. And what's happened as a result? You have forfeited your own life. You have forfeited your own life. What should you see in this? God sees it. God sees it. God judges it. He sees what's happening. He sees how you've been treated. He sees what's been taken from you. He sees those things. He is not blind to them. He sees them and he judges them. And you say, but where is God? God sees it. And he judges it, and we'll get to the rest of that in a second. You forfeited your life, and he says, the stone will cry out from the wall, and the, bee, the beam, not the bee, they didn't steal any bees, but they stole beams from the woodwork, will respond. He's saying, the houses that you've built, with the stuff that you have taken, the rocks and the beams, they're going to cry out against you. And they're going to accuse you. They're going to say what's true. God sees it. God judges it. Woe number three. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. What's he saying here? He's saying those people who would go through and they would kill people with impunity and say these people don't matter and these people do. These people don't matter and so I'm just going to kill them or they're, they're, trying to build, they're trying to build these incredible structures, and so they're using this slave labor from Judah and from all of these other countries that they've captured, and people are dying right and left. There was no OSHA back in that day making sure that things were going well, nor did they care. They founded a city with blood and on iniquity. Verse 13 Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Now, this is a big statement. What did that just say? This is one of the toughest things you might ever hear in church. Is it not from the Lord that these people have done this? Is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples 
labor merely for fire. What is that saying? It's saying this. God not only sees it, God not only judges it, but God is sovereign over it. And he has purposed that these people who are doing evil are laboring merely for fire. The word fire there means this. It means nothing. It means ashes. They're laboring for fire. They are putting kindling under their own destruction. They're, allow, they're, allow, they're, they're, they're heating up the fire that they are in themselves. They will burn themselves up by gaining things in this way, by building a town with blood. And he says, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And what that's saying is this, is that God not only sees it, God not only judges it, but God is sovereign over it. And you might say, how can God be sovereign over the murdering, over the killing, over all of these things, and just sit there and watch it happen. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God not only sees it, God not only judges it, God's not only sovereign over it, but God will use it ultimately for his glory. God will use it ultimately for his glory. Why do you need faith? Go back to verse 4. Why do you need faith? Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Why do you need faith? How do you make it through these circumstances and just go, God, I don't know why you would allow this to take place. You make it through with these statements. God uses the futility of these people and the things that they're doing. He's using it. He is, they are heaping up judgment for themselves. And he is sovereign over that. And he will ultimately and finally use it to be glorified. I don't know how he will do it, but he will ultimately use it to be glorified. And what does that mean? It means this, that he would have renown, that the entire world would know him and would have knowledge of him, that they would look at him and say, you're incredible, that you can take the worst things in the world and use them for your greatest good. And you might say, I don't know how I... I mean, why is God using me that way? Why is God using our world that way? How can I, how can he do this? Because he's God and I'm not. And the only way to make it through this is by faith. Because the righteous shall live by his faith. Well, number four and five, I want to, quickly go through these. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup 
in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, there it is again, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now what's that, what's that saying? It's saying, here's the fourth woe. Here's the fourth thing that I'm judging. Here's the fourth thing that I see. I see the sexual immorality of this people. I see what they're doing. I see how they're acting. How you get people drunk so that you can get in bed with them. It's a phrase that essentially means this, that they're basically getting drunk and engaging in immorality. And God is saying, I see what you've done, that you've intentionally done this. But why does God say that they've done this? He says, verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. What's happening in those situations? What's happening when they're, when they're greedy? What's happening when they're, uh, they're stealing things through theft? What happens when they're murdering? The thing that's happening in them is that they're looking for a way to bolster their own sense of glory. What happens when they're engaging in sexual immorality? They're looking for a way to say, I'm on the throne. I'm the person who's in charge. I'm the person who needs to be made to feel good about what's going on. I need to be the person who's receiving glory. And by this, do you know what this says? It says that all sin comes from a deep and abiding desire in man for glory. But God says this, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Why is that? Because they're looking to find glory in the things of this earth. They're looking to find glory. They're looking to find approval in stuff from this life. He says, utter shame will come upon your glory Woe number five, idolatry. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation. When he makes speechless idols, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. Our desire for glory, Babylon's desire for glory, is rooted in idolatry. See, God goes through these woes, and he says there's greed, and there's theft, and there's murder, and there's sexual immorality, and all of that culminates in a desire for your own glory. But you're going to have shame instead of glory. You're going to have shame instead of glory, he says to Babylon. And he says, really, the root of that is this, is that you are looking to something else. You're looking to the created thing. You're looking to the stuff from this life. You're looking to the things of this life to bring you glorification and to make you feel good. And those things are like wooden objects that you would bow down to and say, oh, most holy and incredible block of wood. Oh, arise, awake, and help me. Or to a piece of metal and say, I, I really want you to serve me. How absurd would it be 
if you and I actually bowed down before something like that and said, I want you to serve me and to help me come alive and help in my life and my things. But God is saying that is the equivalent of what they're doing. That is what they're doing, and that's the equivalent of what we are doing. And so what do we have? We have God sees evil, God judges evil, God is sovereign over evil, God uses evil for his glory. But you know what this also means? The evil isn't out there. The evil isn't just in Chaldea with the Babylonians. The evil is not just that person who's affected you. The evil is in me. The evil is in you. The evil resides in my heart. So when we look at these verses and we say, yeah, God, pronounce woe over them. Tell them that they're in trouble. Yes, God sees it. Yes, God judges it. Yes, God is sovereign over it. Yes, God will get glory and he will shame the sinners. When we see that, You know what else that does? That implicates me and you. God sees my evil. God judges my evil. God is sovereign over the evil deeds that I do and that I've done. God will use it ultimately for his glory. How is that possible? How is that possible? It says here in the last verse, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What's that saying? It's saying every bit of this is in his hand. This is not the last word on evil. This is not the last word at what's what's taking place. The evil done to you or the evil done by you is not the last word on what's happening. God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. He's still in control. And what he's saying to you and I is he's saying this. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There's There's this sense of awe and reverence to say he's on the throne. What he says about me, what he says about Babylon, what he says about Judah, what he says about these things is true. He's the one that's on the throne. And so when he says, I see your evil, I see what's going on there, I'm going to judge it, that's got to bring this level of like, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, what am I going to do? Because God's wrath is coming to me. What's he say to these sexually immoral Babylonians? You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. The cup in the Lord of hosts' right hand. What is that cup? It's the cup of wrath. It's the cup of wrath. And that cup is not a good cup. It is not good. 
Because it means this. If, like, if I'm happy that God sees the evil that's been done to me, if I'm happy that he sees that because he's on the throne, he can see that, he can judge it, then that means that he sees me, he judges me, he's sovereign over me, and he can use it. How does he use it? How does he use it? 1 Peter 2.6 says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says this, I'm, I'm looking back to Old Testament, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this, that God's plan all along was this, is that Jesus is, is going to be laid, he's going to be a cornerstone. And I'm laying him down, and what's going to happen is this, is that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Remember what, what 2.4 says in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. What, what are we talking about? That God sees evil, he judges evil, and what he has is wrath to pour out for us to drink. And that's what he has for us unless he does something because he's on his throne and he's ruling and he's reigning. So what's got to happen? What's got to happen is this, is that he's got to lay a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and he's got to lay this person, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. And when we believe in him, we will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. The answer to all the evil in the world, the answer to my evil in the world, the answer to the judgment that's coming is ultimately and finally this, that God will take care of all of it on the cross of Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 12, it talks about all of these, these witnesses, these people who endured all of this pain and all of this suffering and all of the things that they went. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? What, what, is, it, what is it saying? It's saying this. It's saying that the way to faith, the way that people who are evil and know it, the way that people who are evil and know it, and they see, like God knows what's going on in my life. He sees that I've been greedy. He sees that I've been a thief. He sees that I've been sexually immoral. He sees that maybe I haven't killed anybody, but I've hated my brother, and it's the same as murder in God's eyes. He sees it. He sees it. I'm an idolater. He sees it. God's made a way. He laid a precious cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, and everyone who believes will not be put to shame and the way that we endure in that, the way that we endure in faith is by looking to Jesus. He's not, 
He's not just somebody that we trust in, but he's the founder. He's the one who started this. He's the one who began it, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's continually perfecting us. He's saying, trust in me, hope in me. Don't be an idolater. Don't be somebody who's trusting in money or big houses or your own power or sexual immorality or your sexual identity. Don't trust in those things. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And that essentially says this. Why did Jesus go to the cross? It was, it was ultimately and finally for the glory of God, but the joy that was set before him was you. What does he get when he goes to the cross? He gets you. He purchases you with his own blood. The joy that was set before him was you. And when he went to that cross, do you know what he did? He took on every bit of your shame, the shame for any sexual immorality, he took on the shame of everything that you've ever stolen. He took on the shame of the greed that you have in your life. He took on the shame of everything. He took on the shame of everything that you have ever done, everything that you're doing right now, and everything that you will ever do again. He took on your shame, and he gives you his righteousness. And do you know why he can do that? because he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There's two ways that you can stand before the throne of God. You can stand there in fear because of your shame, or you can stand there in faith because of the glory of God that's happening in and through your life because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Those are the only two ways. Before you look at your Babylon and say, you people are evil, you've got to turn that finger back around and say, but wait a minute, I am evil and he saved me. Who do you have a, an issue with? Who do you have an issue with right now? Who will you not let go? You will not let them off the hook. And you essentially are saying to them, you are evil. You are, a, you're a terrible person the way that you treated me. Your evil is worse than mine. But that's not true. Because the evil in them is the evil in me. Most marriages, when they get to a point where they can't, they can't keep going, they can't survive through what's happening, and they're fighting with each other all the time, and they're deadlocked, they just keep fighting, they keep fighting, they keep fighting. You, do you know why that's happening? It's because you have two people in a marriage 
And both of them are saying, it is about my glory. I want glory. And the, the wife is often saying, I want glory, and I want my husband to glorify me through his love towards me. And the husband is saying back, I want glory, and I want my wife to glorify me through her respect of me. And you can both sit there and say, you know what? You're the problem in this marriage. You're the one who brings evil to this. But the problem is not that. The problem is this, that both of you have evil inside of you. And when I preach it at weddings, I often say this, that if you're trying to have a good marriage simply so that you can be happy, so that things can go well for you, it is motivated by selfishness from the moment that you say, I do. So don't go after a good marriage so that you can be happy. The only reason why you can have a good marriage is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that glorifies God. What does Paul say to husbands? Husbands, love your wives, not so that you have a good marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What's going on in your life? What's the evil that you're pointing at and saying, they are evil? What about if you're somebody who's single and, and you're, saying, you're saying, God, you're evil because you haven't given me a spouse and I obviously deserve that because I'm so incredible. <laughs> that might be your first problem. I, I'm no uh, psychologist. But God, look at all of the things that I've done and all of the things that I'm doing. God, you're evil. But God's not the one that's evil. You know what I'm saying to God? God, I have an idol in my life. I'm trying to worship and serve the created thing, which is marriage and relationship. Like you've made these things. And instead of desiring to worship you with those things, I want to be worshiped with those things. I want to be glorified. You are Babylon in that situation. And do you know what? Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, he went to the cross and he despised the shame and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's there and he's taking on your sin. He's taking on your evil. You know why I waited this whole time to get to application? Because I wanted you to see, look at this evil, look at this evil, look at this evil. But you've got to understand that the evil in you is the same evil that's in them. And if you don't see how to apply it to yourself, you're lost. Faith in Jesus Christ comes by seeing all things as for his glory. All things for his glory. That means the pain that you're going through. That means the suffering that you're going through in your marriage, like you're, you're grinding it out with the person that you're married to right now. You hate them. You're sick of them. They smell bad. They keep moving over on your side of the bed. I mean, I'm not talking from personal experience, but they're constantly encroaching. I, and maybe you don't hate them, but you, you, you love them, but it's starting to get on. Maybe those things are bugging you so much. And the, the person that's at your work is bugging you. And the stuff that's happening in your life is bugging you. 
God is sovereign over the situations that you're in. And he's using it for his glory. Won't you endure? Jesus endured the cross to pay for your evil and my evil. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I'm praying so much that this message um, that is, I think is really hard to hear, that's really uh, just communicating that we are, every one of us, an evil person. How many people probably came in not hoping to hear that they are evil, but God, it is only in and through that understanding that they can have humility and therefore work with life the way that you intended it to be worked with. So Lord, we pray for a new and a real understanding, God, that you would give to us. Lord, we thank you for, um, for what you've done in our lives. Lord, I'm, I'm praying for those that are here this morning that are, are really dealing with suffering and this message is particularly difficult. There's somebody in their life that has hurt them so, so deeply. Lord, I don't even know the level of hurt because I have not experienced that before. But Jesus, you have on the cross. God, you know what's going on. You not only see evil, but you see suffering. You see the people that have suffered through this. And God, you care deeply. You care deeply. Lord, the consolation that we have is this, is that you will finally and eternally make all things good. All things will be for your glory. And you will wipe away every tear from every eye. And there will be no more crying. And there will be no more pain. Because you will be our God. And we will be in the midst of, of your presence. So, God, we look forward to that day. We look forward to eternity with you as our great consolation for a life filled with pain and evil and suffering. God, I pray that we can believe that by faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen.